greet you this morning in the name of Christ, our Lord, who is the head of the church, and counted a joy to be here among brothers and sisters, particularly specific ones that we have extended relationships with. You, you feel older when you say you've known people for a long time. So you just start saying extended relationships with them. I want to invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And while you're turning, I certainly want to thank uh, my friend, your president, for this kind invitation to come and preach in chapel I love chapel services. I love uh, our seminaries. I love the commitment to preparing brothers and sisters for all types of Christian service, uh, but particularly the commitment to preparing pastors to serve and shepherd local congregations. And I certainly want to thank Dr. Dockery for that introduction. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is large, millions of people, but I can say in a singular manner, uh, the way I have thought about conflict, the way I have thought about anger, the way I have engaged people has been singularly shaped by observing Dr. Dockery. Um, probably the first time I put biblical faithfulness and being ironic together. Uh, when I was a young adult, I overdosed on Luther and I was nasty. Um, Not the theology, the kind of persona that was presented. And then also the conservative resurgence and the battle for the Bible. There was just a lot of things when I was young to make you nasty and militant. And I was just tremendously shaped uh, by meeting and getting to know Dr. Dockery. I'm very thankful for that. The things I seek to do now regarding Ephesians 4 and John 17, I wouldn't have, even have the disposition without the fruitful example of Dr. Dockery. First Timothy 4 is incredible. I encourage pastors to annually read through the pastoral epistles. I was speaking to someone the other day, telling him what I was preparing to preach, and I encouraged him to make that his New Year's tradition. Just read through the pastorals and remind yourself because there's a lot of things going on and we can easily get off track. Uh, we were just singing. It's amazing how the Lord orchestrates the singing and the praise that we do in light of the message. Because I've always wondered if pastors really believe that they are prone to wonder. And are they really humble enough to acknowledge, Lord, I feel it. But I don't think... It takes too much research to look around Christian ministry and the church world and see what pastoral leaders have wondered and pastoral leaders have um, ignored the reality that that's a possibility in their life. And so I think 
a faithful shepherd, a faithful minister of the gospel, has two concerns that never change. The minister's two greatest concerns are the same. For the last 18 months, I have missed being with brothers and sisters. Our state convention has a partnership with three associations in western Kenya, about 60 churches. And I've missed being with them over the last 18 months. And if I was there with them today, I would tell them in a whole different context, whole different language, the minister has two great concerns. If I was in Korea this morning, I've been blessed to pastor some wonderful Koreans, South Koreans. And if I was preaching in Korea this morning, I would say the minister has two great concerns. And they are right there at the end of the fourth chapter. Just as a side note, show you how pathetic I am. Um, Verse 3 and 4 are some of my favorite verses because I call those my pork swine verses. Uh, When seven-day Adventists and other kind of people that are against pork and the pig try to come at me, I say, you need to read 1 Timothy 3 and 4. We can receive anything with thanksgiving. It don't call evil what God has made for good. So if anybody been hassling you with legalism about what you eat, 1 Timothy 4 is a good spot. But we're going down to the bottom. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Yes, it matters where you worship. It matters what programming you do. It matters how you go about teaching stewardship and trying to have a steady budget in the congregation. It matters analyzing the community and thinking about how you want to do outreach. It matters other cultural things that develop within the life of a congregation. It matters, a lot of things matter. If you want your church to engage younger people and younger people on social media, I guess social media matters. I mean, I got on social media because of my kids and their peers and being at a church that had different campuses. So all those things matter. There's a lot of things that matter in life. But I think the minister has two great concerns. And I have no problem urging them as priority over other things that matter because, number one, it's revealed in the Word of God as Paul is seeking to encourage the young Timothy in faithful pastoral leadership. But also, as you observe, there are faithful ministers 
who are all over the place in some of those other categories I've mentioned, but they are still faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sadly, there are many people that do well in some of those other things. They're an effective communicator. They can build, a, they can do this. They, they built some wonderful buildings. They've done some wonderful things, but if they crash in one of these two categories, they crash. The other things are good and they matter, but they're not essential. I've built buildings. I've led building campaigns. But that doesn't give my ministry any more fruitfulness or essentiality than like the church planner I know in Kasumu out in Western Kenya who bought a piece of land and their church plant meets at that particular piece of land every Sunday standing there. But I think we can acknowledge that we've seen people failing to pay close attention to themselves, failing to pay close attention to King James used to say the doctrine, take heed unto yourself and the doctrine, failing to take heed unto what they teach. And so those are the most essential things. I know there's a lot of discussion going on about a lot of things in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I pray that we would get those things right and we would honor the Lord and honor holiness, righteousness, and godliness. Uh, but those things don't determine the fruitfulness of your congregation in Fort Worth or in Austin. Those things don't determine whether the people in your congregation, some teenager grows up disillusioned with the Christian church because they see their pastor fail in one of these two areas. So it is the priority, yourself and your teaching, your doctrine, what you teach. Remember that you are a child of God and you have been shaped by God through others, and so he reminds him in the first chapter, verse 2, that you are my child in the faith. I mean, the faithful minister is never really, like when I was a teenager, people, my friends would be talking, man, I can't wait till I'm grown. I can do what I want. The, the, the faithful minister is never like, I'm grown. Because you've always been like shaped by people. I mean, there's not like a week I don't think about my late pastor. My preaching is shaped by him. My approach to pastoral ministry is shaped by him. So many things are shaped by him. I just explained to you how my approach to relationships has been shaped by observing Dr. Dockery. So he reminds him at the opening of the letter, you are my child in the faith. A great aid to pride and arrogance and things like that is just to remember who and how God has used others to shape you along the way. I mean, I'm more righteous, and I have a greater appreciation for righteousness because when I was a kid, if you were at kids' camp and you tried to sneak to the girls' cabin, the deacons would whoop you. I'm a, I, was a, I was a child in the church before that little lame timeout mess. I was a child in the church before parents would get upset if the deacon or the Sunday school teacher got with you. 
And so my righteousness was affected by that. All, all, all these kind of things. You are my child in the faith. You know, the culture celebrates the self-made man or the self-made woman, but there is no self-made anyone in the kingdom of God. So his greeting, his establishing of the relationship is, remember, you are my child in the faith. And then in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he reminds them, your strength and your grace comes from the Lord. You are a recipient of the strength and the grace of the Lord. Listen to these verses. I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. Part of taking heed unto yourself is keeping a certain type of Christian. This, is, this doesn't even just apply to ministers. Just a certain type of Christian humility about yourself. We truly are who we are by the grace of God. We truly are who we are by the mercy of God. Growing up in Washington, D.C., and then moving out to Maryland, I wasn't more righteous than the guys who got messed up in the criminal justice system. I wasn't more righteous than the guys who got caught up in the crack epidemic in the 80s. I wasn't more righteous than the guys that learned how to drink in high school and never unlearned it. I wasn't more righteous than those guys. It's the mercy of the Lord. So the Christian ought to maintain a certain type of humility just knowing that we are saved and we are who we are because of the strength and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Paul comes to young Timothy reminding him that he, Paul, is a recipient of the strength and the grace of God. Another way that you take heed unto yourself is in verses 18 through 20 in chapter 1, is you remember that we are waging a good warfare. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made to you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck their faith. That's my reference to prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We shouldn't assume that I'm going to end up where I started out. I spoke to someone last night. I was walking around campus admiring the nighttime view. Uh, your president was always putting up pictures at night from the dome. So I said, let me go see the dome at night. And I was talking to a brother on the phone, and he went to Southern right before Dr. Mo, so maybe 91 or 92, and he was telling me how many people were in class with him that are no longer in ministry. 
and we were lamenting that for a moment. There is the possibility, and if you look at the history of God's people in the Scripture, there's a possibility to hold fast and to hold faithful, and there is a possibility to shipwreck. And certainly, we've seen our share of shipwrecks in the Southern Baptist Convention. Don't be presumptuous on longevity. Don't be presumptuous. Paul said, pay close attention to yourself. Don't put yourself on cruise control, autopilot. No, no, no. The Christian life is a stick shift with a clutch. And you got to work that thing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, even in that, God has given you the strength, for it is God who worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. But it's not, it's not autopilot. It's not cruise control. It's clutching and shifting. He says further in 2.7, remember your identity. He says, he says, he reminds Timothy of who he is. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. My plea is for pastors to be content being pastors. When I was called to ministry, it was the consuming thing of my life, and I was so happy to be a pastor. And I meet guys today, and you look at their profile and how they present themselves, and like, you know, a pastor is just one of the things they do. Like, like if somebody on my bio says, oh, when he has free time, he rides his Harley. Being a pastor is not a hobby. It's not a Part-time gig, it's not a, it, 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 it's, it's who you are. Paul said, I am a servant of Christ. I'm a slave of the Lord. I give my life over to gospel ministry. Yeah, you might be co-vocational or bivocational or full-time, but you are, I hope you are, I hope you want to be a pastor of God's people. Dr. Dockery mentioned the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware. I love being a state exec. It's enjoyable work. I love the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but I'm returning to congregational life because I just miss walking with God's people. I miss shepherding the people. It's who I am. I mean, that whole five years, I was like, yeah, I'm a pastor who's doing denominational work. And, you know, okay, stop faking it. Go back and be a pastor. <laughs> Remind him of his identity. Part of who you are is part of taking care of you is knowing who you are. And not just among pastors, but just among adults in general. Ooh, I just think it's kind of weird and sad when people like reinventing themselves every four or five years. Settle right now who you are. I'm called to ministry. I've come here to prepare. I've invested time. I'm investing money. I'm investing effort. The professors are investing in me. Southern Baptists all over the country are investing in me. I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. 
I do some other things. I like this. This is a nice hobby. But I am a minister of the gospel. Settle that. He says in the seventh verse, I'm appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And if you will lay your life out for those things, you'll be surprised. You look up, and it's time to go to bed. And you look up, and it's five and ten years later. And you spent your time being fruitful for Christ and not just running around trying to establish some identity and some presence and some platform. I know who I am. People say, oh, man, you preach all over the Southern Baptist Convention. I am no more a preacher than when I was a preacher when I was the chaplain at the Hamilton County Jail in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my wife is from. I knew it way back then. If you, if you settle your identity, you can avoid a lot of the wandering that people go through. Fruitless, useless wandering. Another part of taking care of yourself is just to remember the basics, and it's a shame you have to say this now, but the basics of pastoral character. That would be three, one through seven. We know these things well. If anyone desires the office of a bishop, he desires a noble task. It's a noble task. It's not an add-on. It's a noble task in the eyes of the holy God. It doesn't matter what the society thinks about you. It doesn't matter what your cousins think about you. It's a noble task. I talk to students all the time. And they say, I told my parents I would call to ministry, and my parents were like, oh. As close as that is, their assessment isn't the final assessment. If anyone desires the office of a bishop, he desires a noble work. Remind yourself of the basic character traits. Above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, gentle. You know, Southern Baptists had a battle for the Bible, and we say we believe the authority and the truth and this inerrancy of Scripture, but, you know, 1 Timothy says an overseer and a pastor shouldn't be quarrelsome, and we got some of the jerkiest jerks in our pulpits and on Twitter, so I don't know what they're talking about, sufficiency and inerrancy. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to take care of his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Oh, wow. Are there any scientists in here? The human brain is fascinating. Because I'm reading like the ESV, but I just said that whole passage almost in the King James Version because like my brain overruled my eyeballs. That's amazing. The human brain is fascinating. That kind of stuff just makes me praise God. I'm like, okay, you saying something, and that is not what you're reading with your eyes. That's amazing. Don't forget the basic characteristics of a pastor. And finally, as a faithful minister of the gospel, there's some people that you just don't want to be like. So he gets to the chapter where we are in the opening verses. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Don't be 
like them. Part of believing the Bible is believing that the unrighteous things that the Bible points out about unrighteous people are things that are not pleasing to God, and you want to reject those things. And since the Bible points those things out about real people, you also want to be humble and realize that you could be susceptible to those old things, those same things. And so you want to intentionally push against those things. I don't want to be deceitful. I don't want to be a liar. I don't want my conscience seared. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to be those things. What I want to be is that 12th verse. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example. Be thou an example. <laughs> Let me read what the Bible says in front of me that I have right here on paper. <laughs> Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Yeah, Michael Jackson was not a theologian. But he was right. You, you really do have to start with the man in the mirror. And so before you go to the office, before you go to the church, before you go to the hospital visit, before you go to any place of pastoral ministry execution, look in the mirror at that person who starts each day and pay close attention to yourself. And everybody has their own lifestyle. Everyone has their own habits. But I do find it helpful to kind of start my day with the one-year daily Bible reading. And so the first mirror I try to look in each day is the Scripture. It's amazing how a look in that mirror every day sets you for the day. The minister has two great concerns. Take heed unto yourself and to your teaching. So if Christian leaders and speakers and pastors and shepherds are not crashing in their personal life, they're crashing in what they're teaching. either not fully teaching all of Scripture, yet saying they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, or not consecutively teaching through the Scripture, which allows you to teach the breadth of Scripture, and so they spend time avoiding sins that they see within their congregation because they're too cowardly to address those things when the text addresses those things. And here's my little introduction to preaching class nagging plea that you would consider a ministry based upon consecutive exposition because as you walk through chapters or you walk through books, you will address the breadth of Scripture and no one in the congregation will feel like you're picking on them because when the text comes to the gossiper, I mean, you've known sister or brother so-and-so was a gossiper for a year and then you get to that point in the text, they can't say, oh, you preaching, you preaching about me. No, no, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. 
One of my greatest joys, one of my greatest joys, uh, uh, and I think a lot of evangelicals have weak pneumatology. They don't really believe in the work of the power of the Holy Spirit, and Pentecostals are kind of scared them off, and their pneumatology is so lame. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? I ain't no Pentecostal. Okay, I ain't no Pentecostal is not a theology. <laughs> I love when I'm greeting people after church. And somebody comes through the line looking kind of troubled. And they say, Pastor, did somebody talk to you about me this week? I say, I don't know anything about you. Out of the ordinary. Just take that as the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God loves you. That's what you need to worry about. Don't worry about what, no, no, no one has talked to me. God spoke to you in that message today. So let me encourage you to think about consecutive exposition. But he says in 4.16, not only should you keep a close watch on yourself, but you must keep a close watch on your teaching. Well, of course, he opens up the book, reminding him that Jesus is our Savior and our hope. 1.1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. I remember on 9-11, at, excuse me, that's where I taught, so pardon the Southern references. I remember on 9-11, Dr. Moeller stood in the pulpit and he said, the preacher of the word of God ought to have something to say when no one else has something to say. Remember 9-11, people, oh, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? Where's God? What? God's not moving and flaky and mutable. It's us. God's where he's always been. One of my favorite psalms, for our God is in the heavens, and he has done whatsoever he hath pleased. Woo-wee. Remember that he is our Savior and our hope. If you want some insight on this, either through IMB relationships or through social media, get to know some Christians in Iran or China or India. And get to understand what it's like for Christ to be your hope in trying situations. I don't mean like the media doesn't like you. I don't mean the city council hassling you on your building project. I mean, when like militant Muslims or Hindus are coming into your village in India threatening you physically. Christ, our hope in trying times. I mean, I think you should engage as a citizen however you choose to engage as a citizen. But when Christians are passing out, like whoever wins a presidential election is like the difference between the sun coming up and the sun not coming up. You lame and you weak. And Proverbs says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Christ is our hope. Christians in Iran and China standing up saying Christ is our hope 
and we fainting over politicians. And many people in the pews are doing it because clowns in the pulpit are doing it. So he says, take heed to your teachings. Part of that teachings is the way he opens this letter. Christ Jesus is our Savior and our hope. Part of taking care of your teaching is to remember that you have a charge to keep and you have teaching to guard. He says there in the third and the... Uh, Fourth verse, still in one, chapter 1, and I urge you as I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The pastor loves and guards the sheep That's why you have conversations with people. That's why you do like Richard Baxter. You stop by and you visit members in their homes and kind of see what their spiritual state is. You should read the Reformed Pastor. And it's not Reformed like you think, so put the hair down on your neck. It's about a different way to pass a pastoral methodology. Yeah, I mean, that's like kryptonite sometimes. <gasps> what did you say? Reform pastoral methodology. Go by and check on the spiritual state of your members. And charge them about certain things and guard certain things. Like there's always things in particular context, but there's some things that just never change. I think you always have to guard the truthfulness, the authority, inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture. And by guarding that, you guard the exclusivity of Christ and the Trinitarian nature of God. I think at all places, at all times throughout the history of the church, those three things must be guarded. And then you have other things like in our culture, a biblical understanding of sexuality, that God created male and female in his image and his likeness. Those things, we have other things depending upon your cultural context. But you always have to guard from your children's ministry up to the oldest adult. The authority and the truthfulness of Scripture, which declares the exclusivity of Christ and the Trinitarian nature of God, which sets God apart from monotheistic religions with a monotheist, with a Unitarian God, and sets it apart from all the polytheistic religions of the world. He, we are uniquely Trinitarian. When I'm in Kenya, whatever their tribal language, whatever their sub-language, I make sure they understand the Romans word and the Colossians word for Godhead. Because even out there in the middle of nowhere with nothing, there's some uh, Jehovah Witness or Mormon or Muslim or somebody walking up the street trying to tell them that Jesus is not the Christ and he's not God. So we must always guard the Trinity, the exclusivity of Christ, and the authority of Scripture and then other things will come up in your context. As a pastor, taking care of your teaching is guarding those things. We must guard the gospel of the glory of the blessed Lord. If you look at chapter 1, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the pastor that is taking close attention to his doctrine 
He's not declaring a prosperity gospel. He's not declaring a black or white gospel. He's not declaring a red, white, and blue American gospel. He's declaring the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. I don't need any words with gospel. The gospel. If you want some words, get the words from the opening of Mark's gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But none of these adjectives, none of these, no, no, the preserve, teach the gospel. The gospel. Ah, I got to push on. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to your doctrine. And when you're at a Southern Baptist seminary, pay attention to the clock. (laughs) If you look at chapter 2, verse 5, there's an explicit declaration there. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I'll keep moving because I mentioned uh, uh, exclusivity. But if you go up before that in verse 4, it speaks of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In our crazy, divided world with whatever, classism, sexism, partiality, racism, all kinds of isms, in our kind of world, you have to remember to teach the broad gift of the gospel. And there's nothing new about that. There's nothing, the world didn't invent that. When God made a promise to Abraham, he said, the nations will be blessed through you. When Israel came up out of Egypt, a mixed multitude came up with them. On the day of Pentecost, there were people, Jews from all kinds of nations and all kinds of other folk. And when we see the glorious picture in Revelation that Dr. Chitwood from the IMB speaks of so well, it's every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation in in a world with a whole lot of divisions and a whole lot of partiality. We must guard the broad nature of the gospel gift. God desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The pastor God's that broad nature of that gift. You deal with people when you know they're prejudiced and partial against certain people. You deal with people when they're treating people like they're less than human. If, you, if your political calculation leads you to a certain kind of place, that's fine. But you still ought to have the gumption to say, it's sinful and unrighteous to refer to Mexican immigrants trying to get into the U.S. as if they're less than human beings. Unless you're a politically expedient punk, scared to say anything because you're not guarding the truth. The Bible says that we ought to be consistently proclaiming and guarding the broad nature of his gift. There's a beautiful summary here of the mystery of the gospel. At the end of chapter uh, uh, three, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. The faithful pastor talks about things and spends his time guarding things that are different than what the world is talking about. 
You ever see pastors that seem like they're trying to be the religious version of the CNN guy or the Fox News guy or the MSNBC guy? No, you declare something different. The, the, take heed to yourself and to your teaching. The teaching that you are taking heed to is different than what the world is declaring. And just to go back to the hymn we just sang, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. As you take heed to yourself and to your teachings, particularly your teaching, he says in chapter 4, verse 13 to 15, be consistent. Till I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid, hands on, laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Be consistent. I think part of the reason that the church is in the state that she is in, regardless of denomination and region and size and all that kind of stuff is because of the state the pulpit is in. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. I do research. I've just spent five years serving congregations. Jerky members sit in front of a jerky pulpit every Sunday and learn how to be jerky and justify it in their thinking in the eyes of God. Evangelistic, hot church members learning from evangelistically hot pastors. We have six seminaries. We have six wonderful seminaries, but seminaries have personalities and stuff. And, you know, one thing I like about Southwestern, like some of the dudes I know that went here, um, people like Steve Gaines and people like, I mean, they, they, they like bona fide share the gospel. I, a lot of pastors theoretically talk about sharing the gospel. Uh, some of these dudes that came through Southwestern, they like bona fide share the gospel. They had classes with the late Dr. Roy Fish, and they like the evangelism is like in they juice. So if Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see the day approaching, that means that the church, the congregation, the life of the body doesn't become less important. It becomes more important. And if the life of the body becomes more important, then the fruitfulness and the faithfulness of her shepherds becomes more important. And so as busy as the world is, the minister has two great concerns. Take heed to yourself and take heed to your doctrine. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters in this beautiful community. May they bear much fruit this semester, both in their studies and in their congregational life. Those that are married, may they bear fruit and manage their homes well as you told, as your word says, that 
he would take care of God's people, should be able to manage his own home. And those that are single, may they pursue singleness in a holistic way to honor you in all that they do. Thank you for brothers and sisters in this community that love you. Thank you for the rich legacy of evangelism associated with many who have passed through these, 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 these grounds, Lord. Please bless my brother as he gives leadership to this seminary, and may they bear much fruit to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. In a distracted world, Lord, please hone these ministers in on two things. Taking care of themselves and paying attention to the doctrine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.